Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, do not open up to Ephesians, but open up to 1 Timothy. I have to get used to saying that uh, after uh, quite a few years of saying, open your Bibles to Ephesians. Um, today, we begin our journey uh, in the book of 1 Timothy. And I'd like to begin by just reading the first two verses as we start Uh, Because this morning, we're just going to give an overview. Uh, We're going to take a look at uh, the two main characters uh, as we consider uh, the Apostle Paul and as we consider young Timothy, uh, as we take a look at the purpose of this letter, uh, as well as some of the nuggets that we can look forward to as we consider the whole book uh, this morning. So we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as we consider the book of 1 Timothy, um, to give us an idea of when uh, it was penned, uh, we can uh, look into the book of Acts and Uh, take a look between uh, the Apostle Paul's first and uh, final imprisonment. Uh, And so we date the writing of the book of 1 Timothy around 63-64 AD uh, as we uh, consider uh, God's call upon Paul. And as you know uh, from your New Testament, as you study it, uh, that there are 13 uh, epistles that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, And something unique about this one, as well as a couple others, is that uh, this is one of four letters that Paul wrote personally to an individual. Uh, As you know, we we just finished with the book of Ephesians, and that was written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, And this book here, 1 Timothy as well as 2 Timothy, uh, Titus and Philemon, are all personal individual letters to individuals, uh, being Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. But I'd like to refresh our memory because as I was looking back and deciding, you know, how much do I do as in relation to an overview, um, it's actually been three years since we considered the Apostle Paul uh, and, you know, he, what brought him to this point uh, where we find ourselves in this personal letter. Uh, and so as we take a look at the scriptures, as we go back to the book of Acts uh, chapter 22, uh, we find that uh, Paul is actually... Uh, one born Saul of Tarsus. Um, In chapter 22, verse 3 of Acts, it says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to a strict matter of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So part of what we find is that Paul was underneath of the teaching of uh, someone that would guide him in everything pertaining to uh, pharisaical law uh, in in relation to, you know, Judaism and being, um, you know, before God as one of God's uh, chosen people. Uh, We can go to the book of Philippians chapter 3 and find out Paul's credentials uh, in verses 5 to 6 where it says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Uh, 
Paul fit the, the perfect picture of what a first century Pharisee would be like. And if you wanted to see what a Pharisee of Pharisees, someone that stood out as the cream rose to the top, that would be Paul. Um, he was very learned, very uh, studious, uh, and very much, as it says there in Acts 22, being zealous for God as uh, all of those were that day. Paul had a zeal for God. Uh, and we're going to find that that zeal, uh, even though there was excitement there, even though there was passion there, uh, it's possible to be zealous for God, but yet have no relationship with God. Uh, as we'll find, you know, as we continue on, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 9, you have the account of Paul's conversion. Um, as it begins in chapter 9, it talks about him breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, because we know that Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. Uh, we know Paul, uh, you know, was very much against anyone who uh, loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that as it begins in chapter 9, just moments before as it speaks to uh, his zeal for the Lord was is that it was a zeal that uh, was in persecution of anyone who saw Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So much so that he was willing to go to the high priest and get permission to actually drag people off uh, and bring them in. Um, and it was on that journey as he got permission to go to Damascus and do so uh, that he met the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Uh, as he uh, was blinded from heaven with a bright light, uh, and all of a sudden he heard words saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Uh, this would be a transition in the life of Saul of Tarsus, uh, who we know as Paul, the writer of uh, these 13 epistles in the New Testament, uh, because it would be a transition from him being zealous for God and having a righteousness his own, what we would call a self-righteousness, and him realizing that the only way that he can be right with God is by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, who we sung about this morning, um, and one that we know that there's salvation in his name. In Acts chapter 9, uh, as Paul, uh, or Saul then, was blinded, uh, he was told to go to a man um, named Ananias, uh, and Ananias, uh, uh, in a vision, heard this from the Lord. It says, Go, for he, speaking of Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, God had a special calling on Paul's life. First and foremost, in relation to salvation itself. Because uh, in relation to who Paul was as one zealous for God, he really did not know God salvifically. He did not know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was persecuting and even you know, breathing uh, you know, threats of murder to those who trusted Christ. Uh, and so that had to change. Uh, because in order for God to use Paul in a powerful way, as we'll find here uh, in 1 Timothy, to be an encouragement uh, to a young pastor, um, he had to first become a child of God uh, because he was not. He did not know Jesus Christ. Uh, 
You'll notice there from a text that says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, uh, which you remember that is how uh, Ephesians began. And what, what Paul has come to the realization, which takes him from being Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, as the one who had the, the pedigree and everything that was necessary for him to be zealous for God, but yet not know the true God through Christ, said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, something that would separate him out uh, as God had changed him. It says there in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, you talk about a complete turnabout, a complete repentance of faith where he turned the opposite direction. This is it by definition. Because Paul was, was you know, persecuting the church. He was persecuting anyone who said that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. And here's Paul saying, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, surpassing the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul had been transformed. He no, no longer saw himself as one who could attain righteousness by himself, by keeping the law. It goes on to say in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Does that sound like the same man Saul as we read about in you know, Acts before his conversion, no, this is a man who has been humbled. This is a man who has seen the Savior, a man who has had his eyes open to spiritual things for him to see his need of a Savior and that he could not save himself, that if anything, he was the farthest thing from righteousness. Verse 9 says, uh, and be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So in other words, living like a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping the letter of the law. He says, but that which comes through faith in not myself, not my good works, not in keeping the law, but faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Not a faith in who Paul was, not in, in, in a faith in, you know, his family lineage, not that he had every, you know, box checked, but faith in Christ. Something outside of himself, where God had to step into Paul's world, a very religious world, a very zealous for God world, but not one where Paul really truly knew God. As we know, an apostle is someone who is sent on a mission as an ambassador or a herald. We know that Jesus Christ himself was called an apostle, and that fits because Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father for a particular purpose of showing the world their sin, telling them the truth that they cannot save themselves, and that the only way they can be saved is through Jesus Christ. 
And as an apostle in Acts 9, we know that he was in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, uh, that he was chosen by God. In Galatians chapter 1, he was taught through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 19, uh, by the power of God, he was able to perform extraordinary miracles. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, we find that he confounded the Jews with his testimony of Jesus. Wait, isn't this the same guy who was putting people in prison and you know, making threats of putting them to death because of their faith and trust in Jesus? Yes, he is. He's not the same person. He's been born again. He's had his eyes opened. And going from someone who was prideful, someone who would boast that as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and following. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So from going to, from being a prideful man in relation to his religiosity, we see Paul, on the other hand, as he has exercised faith and trust in Jesus Christ, being humbled. It's not even saying that he's worthy to be an apostle, even though, as we read earlier, uh, as Ananias was told in a vision, that he was a chosen instrument of mine. He was chosen by God himself, and Jesus Christ uh, would come in and use him in a powerful way. See, this is who wrote the book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Saul of Tarsus, who it was a chosen instrument of God, who would be, you know, use his Greek name Paul to be able to be a witness of what Jesus Christ had done in his life, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from a law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So that's who wrote the book of 1 Timothy, this letter. Uh, and he wrote this letter to young Timothy, uh, who, as he says in the text, is my true child in the faith. See, if you look at the New Testament, you'll notice that Paul is very, you know, a matter of fact. Um, if you, you know, uh, read the book of Galatians, you'll find that he is very much in your face in relation to calling out sin uh, and you know, calling people to repentance. And in 1 Timothy, uh, as well as Titus, uh, you know, we find a, 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 the, another side of Paul. Not a different Paul, just a, another hat, as it were, that Paul would wear, um, but one that would show a personal side. Um, because we see a tenderness in Paul as he writes this letter. Uh, and he says, he says, my true child in the faith. Now, we're not given any account in relation to how Timothy came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we are given testimony as to his faith, uh, which was genuine. Um, but it is, you know, possible that Paul and Barnabas, when they were on their first missionary journey, and when they were in Lystra, that that is when Timothy heard the gospel for the very first time or his grandmother or his mother. Uh, we don't know for sure, but when Paul and Silas came through Lystra a second time on their second missionary journey, uh, that's when you know, we see Paul you know, taking young Timothy with him. 
It says there in Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 3, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Uh, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him before, uh, or because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so we see that Paul, as he's coming back through, as he's checking you know, up on the, the cities and, you know, as they came through the first time, you know, here he is coming back through, and he is you know, bringing Timothy, uh, as it were, along with him. Uh, to be able to uh, minister to him, to have a, a partnership, as it were, uh, a father and son relationship, as we'll see here in a moment, uh, as uh, he seeks to train Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, we can see this a little bit more, uh, where it's, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you, speaking of Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And so here we see a little bit more of this tender side of Paul, uh, where he enjoyed having Timothy with him, that he was a like brother in the faith, that he was an encouragement to him. Verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, uh, and as you read the New Testament account, as, as no doubt realize, even as he wrote the letters to the churches, that there were people within the church that did not have a sincere faith, and some that had a faith not in God, but had, you know, uh, a faith in themselves or in their works. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure, dwells in you as well. What a testimony for someone to say that I know of your sincere faith. As you think about the circles of influence you have, what would people say about you? Would they say that you know what, I know of your sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt in my mind that you are because I see your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I see fruit as a result of the Holy Spirit living in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And it says here, I remember your tears. See, there's a heartfelt connection between the Apostle Paul and Timothy uh, as a father with a son, a spiritual father with a spiritual son. And multiple times as we look at the letters of Paul, he referred multiple times to him as his brother, uh, as his fellow worker uh, in the faith, uh, and once as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So Paul, you know, took it upon himself to, to be a spiritual mentor to young Timothy. And I think, first, or I think that Philippians chapter 2 pens it well. Listen to what he says in verses 19 and following. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Verse 20, for I have no one like him. 
He's speaking of Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. What a heartfelt communication. What a heartfelt, you know, I have no one like him. Do you have somebody that you know that's part of, you know, your, your Christian life that you would say, I have no one like them? This is an individual I can go to at any point of the day or night. I can call them and let them know that, hey, I'm, I'm really in need of, of prayer. I really need some encouragement. Not like the, you know, the other people that I may know at Ellington Baptist Church or outside of Ellington Baptist Church or even within my own family, but somebody that's close to me. As a son with a father or a mother with a daughter, someone who maybe has served with you before in a particular ministry or just someone that you've spent time with sitting and praying together, someone that is a partner with you. Well, see, this is the kind of relationship that we see you know, between Paul and Timothy. Uh, we know that Timothy was with Paul when he wrote Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon. We know that Paul sent Timothy to minister to the churches in Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and in Ephesus, where we find Timothy as a pastor. And, you know, as we take a look at the biblical accounts, it mentions in here, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 16, there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Again, details matter. You know, why, why put that in there? Well, because Timothy is going to, as a pastor, be able to as it were, bridge the distinctions between both Jewish people as well as Greek people. Because his mother was a Jew, his father was a Greek, and so he would be able to minister more effectively across uh, and be able to minister to Jews and Gentiles alike, not showing any partiality, but be able to identify with them because he comes out of a home uh, of both Jew and Gentile upbringing. So what is the purpose of this letter? We know that Paul wrote it. We know he wrote it to young Timothy. Well, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because as we start looking at some of the content of 1 Timothy, um, I want to share with you the key theme verse, which is a nugget in itself um, from the book. And then we're going to go back to chapter 1, and we're going to pick a few more nuggets out of 1 Timothy so that you can begin to understand some of the content which we're going to be taking a look at. Uh, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, starting in verse 14. This would be, I would say, the key theme verse, or verses. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So this is the key to 1 Timothy. You've probably heard of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus being referred to as the pastoral epistles. And you may be thinking, well, you know, isn't that really books for pastors? Well, yes, it is but not just for pastors. Matter of fact, I would make an argument that every portion of Scripture is for the benefit of every believer. Now, are there things that pastors can glean from 1 Timothy as Paul wrote to young Timothy, pastor at the church in Ephesus? Yes. But consider the content here. Is it just the pastor's responsibility to know the truth, to uh, know the living God, to be part of the household of God, or to know the mystery of godliness? The answer to that question is no. I'm not going to have to give an account to God for you. When I stand before God, I will give an account of myself to God. That's who he's going to be concerned with. But as we take a look at this, as we think about 1 Timothy, yes, it is a pastoral epistle, but it is also for the benefit of the church. Because as we study this, we're going to find that there are many things in which, in relation to uh, life and leadership within the church, are going to be addressed. So who does that affect? Just pastors? No, that affects the entire body of believers. Because we are the church. We are part of the bride of Christ. Uh, You know, we are all part of the, the same body, each with different functions, And so there's going to be much that we're going to be able to glean in relation to life within the church. What is it supposed to look like? What is the leadership supposed to look like? What do you do when? You know, there's going to be things that we're going to see as we go through 1 Timothy. Uh, And and you'll notice here, um, verse 16 in particular, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Well, what is that referring to? Well, it's referring to the meal that's right before us. Because it's speaking about the gospel. It's speaking about Jesus Christ himself. He was manifested in the flesh. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? Vindicated by the Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. And the Father said, you know, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was seen by angels. As the angels from heaven watch and see and try to understand why would the Son of God take on flesh and dwell among sinful men, women, children. Angels that would minister to Jesus when he was in the wilderness, when he was in the garden, after uh, his resurrection they were involved. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. So in other words, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ was going to be proclaimed not only to Jews so that they understand that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, but also to Gentiles because there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Salvation is for all people. And taken up into glory, that's referring to Christ's ascension. So are all these things here just for pastors? Are these things that we as the church can be excited about and have the commission from God himself, from Jesus himself, 
to go and make disciples. Okay? I think you know the answer to that. So don't just discredit and think, well, we're going through a pastoral epistle, so I can kind of turn this down a little bit and realize that probably Pastor Bill's preaching to himself. I am. I do that even when it's not a pastoral epistle because the Spirit works in me as I study and prepare to proclaim to you um, because the Word of God is living and active and none of us are perfected yet. We are still growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So these are part of the pastoral epistles, but they're not just for pastors, but for the church. And so we're going to see that as we walk through 1 Timothy together. So what are some nuggets from 1 Timothy? Well, turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus himself, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's Paul speaking, but I think as we think about how God saved us and opened our eyes to the truth of our need of a Savior, we could say this same thing about ourselves. Because when we see our sin as God sees it, we see ourselves as the foremost of sinners. Look at verse 17, same chapter. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A little bit more of God revealing himself through the uh, writing of Paul and under the inspiration of the Spirit as we consider the God who is the king of ages, capital K. He answers to no one. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Something else we're going to take a look at is the importance of prayer. Well, you say, well, didn't we talk about that in Ephesians and in the Sermon on the Mount? And yep, we did. But as I've told you before, we need to pray more. And so much more as the day approaches. We should be living our lives each and every day in prayer, not just for physical needs, but for spiritual needs, praying that Jesus would come soon as we look forward to what is yet to come. Look at verse 5, same chapter. For there is one God, not many, one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So you don't, you mean there's not more than one way to God? Aren't there multiple ways? Can't I be zealous for God as Paul and get to heaven and be with God forever? Can't I just come into God's throne room and plead my own case? There's one mediator between God and man, the, the man, Christ Jesus. See, the Son of God took on flesh for a reason, to take our place, to substitute himself to take God's wrath upon our sin to the cross of Calvary. That's what we're celebrating this morning, remembering this morning as we take communion. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Part of what we'll learn in 1 Timothy is the caution in relation to false teachers, those that would twist the truth of the word of God, those that would, you know, preach a different gospel to say that the gospel is Jesus plus something else. It says here that in latter times, some will depart from the faith as a result of these false teachings and with teachers that their, their consciences are seared. They are liars and love to lie. They do not proclaim the truth. Same chapter, verses 7 and 8. Paul challenges Timothy to have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. Is that just for pastors? No. We're all supposed to be training ourselves for godliness. Same chapter, verses 12 and 13. As Paul challenges Timothy, he says, Let no no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So whether you're young or old, whether that's physical or spiritual, we should make it our goal to be an example in our speech, in our conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Because that's something that we're all called to do. Go to chapter 6 of First Timothy, verses 6 and 7. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So in other words, don't think that it could be better if... If we are obedient to God and we are living in such a way that we are reflecting Jesus Christ, no matter where that may be in our Christian walk or what God may bless us with or not, we should be content. It says, verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. See, this world is going to be left behind. Does that mean that we cannot enjoy what God has blessed us with and no matter where we may be on that spectrum, whether that is in relation to the family that God has blessed us with or not, or you know, where God has blessed us spiritually or not, or where God has blessed us financially or not. See, when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus then there is contentment as we seek to live in such a way that glorifies him, godliness. Look at verse 10, same chapter. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, the love of money, when we take and elevate anything above our love for God, then that becomes a problem because that becomes our God. 
that becomes what we worship. Money is one example. But we can elevate anything. We can idolize anything. And the thing is, is we should be keeping our focus and our love upon God and God alone. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is the last. It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Is it just the responsibility of pastors to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, to fight the good fight of faith? No. That's what God has called all of us to do. And like I said, each one of these things, as we take a look at these individual nuggets, and there's more I could have picked from, but we would have probably been reading most of 1 Timothy this morning. But it gives you a taste of what Paul, as we see this more tender side of him, you know, guiding this young man in his faith as a pastor in relation to what God called him to do, but to prepare him for all the things that he's going to face and have to, you know, work through in the church that he is a part of as a son of God, but also as the shepherd of God to his church. And so there'll be many things that we'll be able to take a look at and see the application to all of us individually as well as corporately as the church of God. So how should this inform our lives today? Let me suggest three things. It is possible to be zealous for God and not know God. It is possible to be zealous for God and not know God. Paul had an intellectual faith that worked its way out in his own self-righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. But he counted all of that as rubbish in relation to him knowing Jesus Christ. So this morning, are you here and you're zealous for God, but it is a God of your own making? Are you trying to, you know, work your way to heaven? Are you trying to make yourself right before God? Or are you falling on your knees in humility, doing a complete 180 and saying that I can't do it? That's why Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us. Because it's possible to be zealous for God and not know him. Because we only know God up here and we don't know him personally in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Second, God can save anyone, humbling even the proudest. Paul is a prime example of that. But really, when we think about it in relation to our salvation, everyone has to swallow pride. I don't need God. I can live however I want. I don't have to give an account to anybody. I'm my own person. See, God can humble even the most proud and bring them to saving faith. And last, God can use anyone as his ambassador, whether young or old. So the challenge being is, is that if you're here this morning and you know somebody that is younger than you, 
whether that's in the faith because they're a new believer or whether that's chronologically because you're older and they're younger, realize that there's no parameters or no retirement from those things of being a mentor or an example or taking someone alongside and you know, walking together with them in the common faith and in the unity of the spirit to grow together and to be an ambassador in taking the good news to others. See, part of that is growing right where you are so that God can prepare you to be able to share your faith when the time comes. So if you're here this morning and maybe there's someone that you've been seeing and maybe just needs to be encouraged, has someone remind them of the, the truths of the word of God. Remember I talked about at the end of Ephesians that the importance and Paul having Tychicus as a friend in the faith. And here's Timothy, someone that, as he said, I have no one like him. This is the apostle Paul speaking. I have no one like young Timothy who has a sincere faith who he knew as he sent them wherever that he would have a genuine concern for the welfare of those he was sending them to. See, that is the beautiful thing and the beautiful relationship that Paul had with someone much younger, chronologically, and a little bit younger spiritually. So if that's you here this morning, figure out ways in which you can be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, whether you're young or old.